And hello out there to all you Bedford and Sullivan folk. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And that research process has revved up more than ever during this crazy COVID time that we are living in. Uh, As people out there are binging, I have gotten the itch to binge right myself. So uh, without further ado, I think we are going to get a perspective that I I think maybe in little pockets here and there we've discussed uh, at some points, but I don't think anybody's been able to, to get it as as finely tuned as this when it comes to outside perception of New York City and the Brooklyn Dodgers themselves. And I'm going to invite uh, uh, Brook, uh, Southern-born, excuse me, Southern-born Steve Dugan on the program now. And, and Steve, I greatly appreciate your perspective and you coming on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast today. Well, I appreciate you inviting me. Well, let's start from the beginning. Tell everybody your your personal history, your personal background, uh, as well as how you came to have uh, you know somewhat of a passion for for the Brooklyn Dodgers and just just baseball itself. Well, I was born in 1950 in a little town called McCall, South Carolina. And that was my first connection with baseball. My daddy was the accountant in a textile mill. And back then, all the textile mills had baseball teams. And my daddy was the secretary of the textile mill baseball league. And the name of the mill was the Plymouth Manufacturing Company. And the name of the team was the Plymouth Rocks. But they were real serious about baseball in the textile league. In fact, One player on the Plymouth Rocks, I can't remember his name, actually got a contract from a Major League Baseball team. And then when I was about seven, we moved to Atlanta. And my daddy was from Indiana, so he loved baseball. So he would take me to Atlanta Cracker Games. They were in the Southern Association, which was a great minor league. And we went to many Atlanta Cracker games, and then we subsequently moved to Noonan, Georgia, in Fort Valley, Georgia, where I finished high school. And during that time, the Braves came to Atlanta. And many times, you know, we would drive from Fort Valley to Atlanta 100 miles on a weeknight, weekday night, to see the Braves play. And I think that's one thing that, fascinates people like me about living in New York where you had three major league teams and you didn't have to drive 100 miles. You could have driven 100 miles and gotten to see two other teams in Philadelphia. So the idea of one town with three major league baseball teams is almost like heaven. How could this even be possible when so then I graduated from high school. I went to college, graduated from college, got married in 1970, and my wife and I are still married. And Amazing. Congratulations. Carter and, oh, thank you. I worked for Jimmy Carter some, and then I worked for a congressman, and then I became a lawyer. And so that's about the story of my life. Well, that's that's beautiful, and I I wish I, I hope you, that you can kind of go into uh, a little bit more in detail of, of those mythic qualities of New York City, and and also the way that that pop culture shaped Brooklyn for you. Well, I'd be happy to. New York City itself has always been intimidating to me. When I hear Frank Sinatra sing, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, what I always took out of that song was, I couldn't make it there. I'm not Frank Sinatra. I'm not, I, New York City intimidates me. It scares me. But Brooklyn, I identify that with Ralph Cramden and Ed Norton on the honeymoons. I don't think I could make it in New York but I think I might could get into the Raccoon Lodge in Brooklyn and make it. And so, you know, I'm just drawn to Brooklyn, and I admire the humility 
of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Here's a team that kept trying and trying and trying to beat the Yankees. And they had a hard time doing it, but they had this community that supported them. And they called their team the Bums. I don't remember any fans of the New York Yankees calling them the Bums. Something about the humility. Here's a major league community with a major league team that still can laugh at itself with your band you had at all the games at Evans Field. That community feeling made me feel like I might not could make it in New York, but I might have a chance to make it in Brooklyn. And this is shaped by things like the Honeymooners is the best example. Then when I was growing up, you had the Patty Duke show set in Brooklyn where she went to Brooklyn Heights High School. So Brooklyn had a much more sympathetic image in my mind, and I think that is reflected in popular culture. Every situation, comedy, TV show, whether it's MASH or anything else, if they did an episode related to baseball, there were always people wearing Brooklyn Dodgers hats. Never saw anybody wearing a Philadelphia Phillies hat or a Washington Senators hat. Just something magic about Brooklyn. It seemed like an approachable, friendly, less intimidating place. And the other thing is, what's the fun of pulling for the New York Yankees or the Alabama Crimson Tide? How do they ever lose a game? What's the fun in that? But if you pull for the Brooklyn Dodgers or the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, every game you win is precious. So I just identify with Brooklyn. Put it. And sorry if we got disconnected for a second, but I love the way regarding the the more – identifiable element of the rest of New York City and Brooklyn itself. You know, I think one of the things that I, I always like to say about it is that you, you I, I, there's so much more Americana within Brooklyn than anybody would necessarily expect out of the place. And I think in general, some people forget how important New York City is to America, uh, whether it's commercially or even from a political uh, stature going all the way back. Um, But when, when I bike around Brooklyn, you, you get, you know, it used to be the farmlands were there and maybe you don't have that type of Americana there, but you just go from neighborhood to neighborhood from block to block and you get all different types of American living whether that's suburban, whether that's urban, it doesn't matter. There's, there's, it's, there's something very quaint and, and, and appreciative about the warmth of the place. And you've never been to either, correct? Well, I've been to New York several times, not counting the times just landing there and taking off for somewhere else. But, you know... Basically, my feelings about New York City and Brooklyn are shaped in my imagination, and they're just fed by popular culture. It's hard to explain. It's sort of like feeling in love. If you fall in love with somebody, don't try to explain to anybody else why you did it. Some things are just beyond our ability to describe I respect New York City. I know New York City is important, but it doesn't come across so sympathetically. I I think the most sympathetic treatment of New York City to me is by Woody Allen. If I look at the movie Manhattan or Annie Hall, New York seemed like a warm, friendly, welcoming community. But if I look at the TV shows like Blue Bloods, my goodness, New York seems like a frightening place. But Brooklyn, it just seems like, in my imagination, like a community attached to a baseball team. And that's a, that, that's a very sympathetic thing because I think of all the towns I lived in, what if I was able 
to take a subway or a bus and get from my house to a Major League Baseball stadium. If you live down here, you would understand how incredible that idea is. Yeah, and I'm lucky from, uh, you know, other Manhattanites' perspective. Uh, Of course, you know, this this entire region starts with transplants. Um, You know, going all the way back to just the idea of the the way, you know, we took it from, well, we paid for it, of course, from the Indians, but... um, the Native Americans, I want to try to try to train myself to not do that. So really going all the way back to the first time white men were in this area, uh, they're all, they were all transplants. And then the richest of the rich would line Central Park from all over. Uh, you know, and you think about Andrew Carnegie, think about uh, Vanderbilt. Uh, um, Rockefeller is probably the, the one most identified, and J.P. Morgan, most identified with New York City. But a lot of these, these titans, saw New York and, and wanted to grab its power. There's something about the power of New York City that makes it your own. That, that uh, it, And I'm not sure if you've ever done this, but like standing on the Brooklyn Bridge, looking out the scenery, whether it's looking to Brooklyn Heights or whether it's looking to Midtown Manhattan, and unfortunately they've kind of ruined some of that with this big tall building next to the Manhattan Bridge, but we don't need to go on that tangent. Um, when you, when you see the when you see the place, you feel as if it was made for you and you alone. And I'm not sure if it's necessarily just because I'm, I sometimes trend a little too selfishly, uh, but I feel like a lot of people get that feeling when they they look at New York City as if the entire place was just built to be your playground. Well, you know that's interesting. Because it's so different from my imagination. I think if I had the privilege to grow up in New York City, I would feel totally different from how I do. But it's like most of what I think when I think of New York City and Brooklyn is shaped by my imagination, which is fed by TV shows and movies and just the idea I got and I can't explain exactly how I got it. I think New York is a wonderful place. I think it's very important to America and the world, but it's a frightening place to me. But Brooklyn in my mind is the opposite. And I I don't think it's just me either because all over America the Brooklyn Dodgers just have a place in people's imagination. It just seems like a welcoming, friendly community that happens to have had a major league baseball team. So, Steve, let me let me interrupt you now and, and ask you to go all the way back to the beginning. If, if somehow you are able to remember what that first memory of the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, of what, you know, and try to be as specific as possible, even if it's like a Honeymooners uh, episode. Uh, see, see where you can go with that. Well, I guess the first image I got of the Brooklyn Dodgers came from two things. The Honeymooners were great ambassadors for Brooklyn, Everybody watched The Honeymooners, and it was only on for one year, the classic 39 episodes. But it's always been on in reruns. My wife and I, we have the DVDs, and we watch it two or three times a week. It's just something great about it. So that was one influence. Another influence was baseball cards in the... About 1957, I started collecting baseball cards. And back then on the baseball cards, they would have the picture of the player, but they'd have a big team logo. And I can see that Dodgers logo right now, and I can see those bees on those guys' hats. And I don't know, it just made a big impression on me. And then the more I found out about it, and something I do that's interesting to me, I go on YouTube and listen to full game broadcasts of the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's so 
folksy. It's so compelling when you have Red Barber and Vin Scully, and they're saying stuff like, hey, it's just the third inning. If you're driving around, we've got seats. Stop on by. If you lived where I lived, if you were going to go to a Major League Baseball game, even after the Braves got to Atlanta, you had to plan it. You had to drive 100 miles just to get there. The idea that you could be driving around, pull into a parking spot, and go to a Major League Baseball game is just totally unbelievable to me. So when was the first time that you remember hearing? Were you able to, like, pick up random baseball games as a child on on a transistor radio of, you know, before? And, and also, uh, the the local team down there, were they, be, were they you know, the minor league uh, teams, were they broadcasting games? The Atlanta Crackers were the main minor league team in my life. They had a great team. They played at a beautiful ballpark, Ponce de Leon Park in Atlanta. They drew tremendous crowds. I remember some night my daddy and I would drive by Ponce de Leon Park and they'd have those signs in the front, SRO, standing room only. There were some seasons the Atlanta Crackers drew more people than some of the major league teams. For a long time, the Atlanta Crackers were independent. They had an announcer, a radio announcer named Ernie Harwell, who was so good that a major league team wanted Ernie Harwell for its announcer. Well, the Crackers were independent, so they had to trade the Crackers some players or some money to get Ernie Harwell. And uh, that's an example. Independent minor league baseball was totally different from the minor leagues today. It was a very big deal. There weren't many sports on TV. And, yeah, the Atlanta Crackers, I remember their radio broadcast. They had a Carling Black Label sign in the left field corner. And if somebody hit a home run over that sign, the announcer would say, good golly, Ms. Mabel, get out the label. And it would be a home run. So the Atlanta <laughs> Crackers were a big deal, and they'd draw twelve or 15,000 people for a game. So, yeah, that was big. But everywhere around the South, every town I lived in had a baseball team. Noonan, Georgia had a minor league baseball team. Macon, Georgia had a baseball team. The Macon Peaches, Columbus, Georgia had a baseball team. People forget how big minor league baseball was before we had all this baseball on television Minor league baseball was a big thing. I know it was in the South. And so people really identified with baseball. And and as far as the major league teams, there wasn't any ESPN. We got one or two baseball games a weekend from the major leagues on Saturday and sometimes Sunday. And, of course, the announcers that I remember, Dizzy Dean and Buddy Blackburn, and later Dizzy Dean and Pee Wee Reese. And sitting there on Saturdays with my daddy watching Major League Baseball, a couple of things I remember. Dizzy Dean, if the game got out of hand, he would sing the Wabash Cannonball. Sometimes it was early TV. (laughs) And between the innings, they would have Dizzy Dean read a commercial. So he's reading a commercial about Falstaff beer. And he doesn't think they're going to put the camera on him. For some reason, they put the camera on Dizzy Dean, and there he is reading a Falstaff beer commercial, holding a can of Budweiser and drinking it during the Falstaff beer commercial. That's the way life was back then. It was so different. And we watched, it seemed like the Yankees were on the game of the week every week. And this was when they had the great teams. And uh, every time Yogi Berra came up to bat in the eighth or ninth inning with the game tied or the Yankees behind by one, my daddy would say, he's going to hit a home run. And it seemed like he always did. 
And by the way, Yogi Berra was a great ambassador for New York because you might be intimidated by some of the people in New York, but it seemed like Yogi Berra was a regular guy. And so, you know, these are some of my first memories of baseball. But how I got so fond of the Brooklyn Dodgers, I can't even explain it to you. Well, I think in many ways you just did. Um, For one thing, you know, you had Pee Wee Reese as an announcer, of course, because of his Southern locution. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because when you're thinking about radio and and talking about Red Barber, part of the comfort for the way that radio was built in New York City, radio was built in, uh, uh, radio baseball was built in New York City, um, were all... You know, some of these guys were from the South. Red Barber was from the South. Uh, unfortunately, I'm blanking on exactly where he was from. But it, it, it's it's interesting the way that you were talking about Yogi Berra being the bringing a little bit of sympathy, maybe not sympathy, but but uh, identify. You know, um, the ability to identify with the Yankees. Um, it's it's kind of how what ended up happening for Brooklyn and Red Barber. There was something very comforting about him delivering this this city ball club to its people. And another thing about that, too, is maybe why it works so well is that, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly moving at, at, at such, like, almost the speed of light here in New York City. Even in Brooklyn, you know, it, it, it was not always where everybody worked, but it was where everybody lived, so they needed a little bit of a break. Um, but you still had that New York, you still had that, that attitude constantly going. You know, when you're going to the, the, the corner store, you know, you're having a very animated conversation about the Dodgers. Well, after that animated conversation is over, you're sitting back and you're letting Red Barber just paint the picture in such a beautiful, relaxing way. Um, and, and you can imagine, like, it, it, it's only in imagination now that we can think about all those very intense Brooklynites standing around the radio. They themselves are arguing about certain things and very loud and very rambunctious. And then they all stop to listen to Red Barber relax them again. Well, Red Barber was a... He's a was a great announcer, and you talk about announcers from the South. You know, Mel Allen was from Alabama, and uh, Mel Allen, I think he went to the University of Alabama. So, in fact, there was an episode of the old show. I call it Sergeant Bilko. Sometimes it's referred to as the Phil Silver Show. But they have an episode about a Southerner in Bilko's platoon who's a great baseball player. So Bilko sells him to the New York Yankees, and Bilko's going to make a lot of money selling this baseball player to the Yankees. But when the guy finds out he's going to be playing for a team called the Yankees, he doesn't want to go because he's from the South. So Bilko arranges on this episode to have Mel Allen and Red Barber and Yogi Berra show up Bilko takes him to New York and has these three people, Mel Allen, Red Barber, and Yogi Berra, come to the guy's hotel room and say to him, these are Southerners. This is Colonel Yogi Berra. This is Brother Red Barber. This is General Mel Allen. And they tell him, you come play for us. We are really Southerners. We love this team. So the guy goes. And he becomes a member of the New York Yankees. That's just another example of the way that popular culture back then shaped people's um, ideas about things. And um, certainly with with the Yankees, they seem like a machine. They just, you know, and teams that have all the advantages don't garner a lot of sympathy but Brooklyn didn't seem like a machine, and so it just was something appealing to me about it. Did you ever serve? Do I? Did you ever serve? 
You mean in the military? Yes. Yes, I got I got drafted after I finished college, and um, you know I was drafted into the U.S. Army, and I was in the reserve, so I wasn't didn't have to go overseas to fight, and I'm I guess I'm grateful for that. But I I was, you know, in the army, and the army, by the way. So- is a great thing because when I was in the army, my best friend was a guy from Buffalo, New York, and this was well, in and, 1970. And, and, and I'd like to, before you finish this story, I, I that's where I was going to go next. I was going to ask, what do you think the military does to break some down some of these geographical barriers that get marked up in our minds of stereotypes of certain regions? I think that the military was extremely valuable. I didn't like being in the Army. Basic training was a collection of everything that I could never do because I was never very coordinated. But I think America has lost a lot by no longer having the draft, and I'll tell you why. When I got to basic training, they put me in this barracks, and we were about 50 guys from all over the country, different colors, black and white. We had Puerto Ricans. We had uh, Latin Americans. We had rich Americans. We had poor Americans. But the Army made us all the same, and they made us work like a team. And when you're thrown into something like basic training, all of a sudden your stereotypes of all these different groups that you're now living with go away because they're your world and they're your friends and you have something in common. You want to get out of basic training. I just think America's suffering right now because there's too much stereotyping and I think that's because people don't have an opportunity or take the opportunity to talk to people in other groups. But if you do talk to somebody in a different group from your own group, what I found out is I'm never greeted with anything other than a smile and kindness. And I can see I have so much more in common with people than anything that I might disagree with them on. And that's the glue that holds America together. But I think we're losing that glue. In baseball played a role in that because baseball, look at the Dodgers, look at the Yankees. You bring people from all different parts of the country. And after Jackie Robinson, you get people from different backgrounds, different racial groups, different ethnic groups. You put them together on a team, and, man, the community pulls for the team So the community, Brooklyn, they're not pulling for the people from the north on the team. They're not pulling for the white people on the team. They're pulling for everybody on the team. That's good for America. That's that's something that was good for America. And I just think, you know, we get away from that a little bit. We're not forced to be together as people and we make all our decisions about each other based on looking at television. And I think it was a lot better when we had more relationships, personal encounters. You're, I mean, thinking about the way that people talk to each other from different backgrounds of life, and, and it's all sensationalized and many times negative, uh, going, there's, there's, it's hard to have discourse when you have 280 characters to fit it into. And, or even with Facebook, when you have a little bit more time, you get all of these rants, basically everybody just ranting and ranting and ranting, not even editing, not even looking at the spelling mistakes that they did. And then you have our enemies understanding that this is the way a lot of us are communicating now. And that's how they put a a wedge in between us by fanning those flames. I think that's very true. And I also think 
the antidote to that is what I was just saying. You know, I'm amazed because I've lived in the South all my life, and I love the South, but I realize we have a lot of flaws in our history. And, of course, the biggest flaw we have is that we had slavery, which is a terrible evil and a terrible sin. But one thing we always had, even when I was growing up, we had segregation. There was no equality, and it's really embarrassing, and it's horrible. But one thing we did have, we had personal contact with people. And you can read Jimmy Carter's. He wrote a book about growing up in a rural southern town where his best friends were were black people. But then when he grew up, he realized they couldn't go to the movie with him. They couldn't go to school with him. But he had those friendships. And so we did have that. We had a bad system. We didn't have equality, but we did have relationships. And uh, you look at something like the Alabama Crimson Tide football team, and I'm not an Alabama fan. I'm a Georgia Tech fan. But I'm amazed if you look at the Southeastern Conference right now, full of great black athletes from these southern states, then now those people and their parents are aware that black people were mistreated in the South for hundreds and hundreds of years. But they're such good people. They love their state. So now that these southern universities have teams that are integrated, Players don't choose to go off to Michigan or Ohio State or UCLA or Southern Cal. For some reason, in spite of everything, they have enough love for their native state that they want to go play for the University of Alabama. They want to go play for Georgia Tech. It's amazing to me. I admire these people so much because they're not – they. They they have enough love for where they're from to embrace where they're from, even though they know that where they're from treated them and their ancestors badly for so long. And we need a lot more of that. And a good example of it, take the Brooklyn Dodgers. People from all over the country, people from all types of background, but the community of Brooklyn Nobody went and just cheered for the people from New England. They cheered for everybody with that B on their hat. And that's the beauty of America. You put it so uh, eloquent with with talking about the the way that we need to, um, uh, the the way that we need to start communicating better with each other once more. Um, and, And what do you think, how do you think this entire experience that we're all going through. Do you, it, it seems that while the idea could be that it unites us, that we're all in this together fighting COVID, it seems like it, it still divides us even more the way that we go about doing this. What do you think of that? I think that this COVID um, epidemic or pandemic or however you want to phrase it, it's a different kind of crisis because, like, you take 911. America was totally united about that. Nobody thought that's New York City where this happened. It doesn't matter to me. No, nobody thought that. People thought this is an attack on America, and I love America, and I care about the people in New York City. It broke hearts. All over America. Nobody thought that's New York City. They thought that's America. But the difference is most crises we had in the past, whether it's wars or economic crises or something like 911, they brought us together. But this particular crisis, this pandemic, makes us stay at home, it keeps us away from each other. It's a real challenge that way because we're not getting the togetherness benefit that we usually get out of a crisis. 
we're we're being kept away from each other. I know one day after this virus started, I guess it was July the 4th, I went outside and walked around my block here in Mobile, Alabama. Every house had a flag out. I counted them. There was one house that had 13 flags. They were all American flags. There was no Confederate flag. They were all American flags. And when I finished walking around the block, I went and knocked on my, the door of my next-door neighbor, who happens to be black. And I asked him how he was doing, and we had a nice talk. And I said, listen, I know America's going through a rough time, but I want to tell you that I love you and I care about you. And if I can do anything for you, let me know. And I want to tell you something. If everybody took the trouble to have a personal conversation, the whole country could heal. The problem is, in my opinion, the media and the politicians see something to gain in a crisis. And I'm not saying this about one party or the other or one station or the other. They're all approaching it the same way. So we as people have to take our own initiative, go up to somebody in a different group, go up to somebody a different color, go up to somebody in a different religion, ask them how they're doing, let them know you care about them, tell them you love them, and you'd be amazed the difference it makes to them, but also the difference it makes to you because you find out my neighbors aren't a threat to me. My neighbors are just like I am, and that's what we need. It's well put, and, and uh, Steve, I'm going to introduce you to someone who's a regular on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and that is Mike LeColant. And I, uh, Mike, today uh, I hope you're doing well, and I, I welcome you on. Um, you may have missed some of uh, the show, but one of the things that was brought up was the way the military brings uh, different people together from all over the country. And I was hoping that uh, in also introducing yourself to Steve, uh, you could kind of go down that road and how your experience with, you know, because I think you in general have this this instinct to travel. Sorry to throw that in there. But the, <laughs> it, you, you don't just keep yourself, you don't just keep yourself sitting in, in uh, uh, Bensonhurst, you want to roam, and military helps you do that, not only across America, but across the world. You're right, Sam. Uh, the military had a great deal to do with exposure to other peoples from throughout the country. Uh, you know, I'm a New Yorker, native New Yorker, born and raised here. And the thing with that versus the rest of the country, this is the most diverse piece of real estate in all of the United States of America. And if you really want to localize it, Brooklyn is the most diverse place on the planet. So I already went into the military with that benefit in hand. Now, in the military, I quite literally met everyone from just about every state. Uh, There's a gentleman, a very good friend, that I became with, his name was Tim. I'll leave it at that. He came from Oregon. He never met or even came in contact or was ever in the same room with an African-American. I can believe that, coming from that part of the country. But the military does bring a lot of people together uh, under one umbrella, under one cause. You know, people join, it's a volunteer force that we have, so people join for various reasons. Uh, But there's one, two, three, four, five very, very common reasons why people do it. So when you arrive, say, at camp, or you go to school where you learn your job, or once you arrive to your first assignment, be it locally or overseas, In that respect, everybody's wearing green. You know, that's the main color. That's the color of priority. And that does bring people together. Now, when you're not working 9 to 5, and the same applies to the military, 
there is a small tendency for like people to click together. But I found the overall friendships and relationships and interaction very pleasing, very pleasant, very polite, very respectful uh, throughout all the races involved, uh, white, Hispanic, African-American, Asian. Uh, you know, uh, I remember uh, two people, they were from uh, the Fiji Islands, uh, etc. We even had uh, two former British soldiers in one of my units. And of all the people, they're the ones who went AWOL. Uh, we thought it was a great laugh back then. <laughs> all they could do is just all they could do is just disparage the American military. And once upon a time, they were they went haywall. Uh, but the military does do that. Well, don't forget the military is a reg, a regimented business. You know, follow order, obey order, execute order. So there's a, a structure in place that keeps everyone in place and down the narrow, straight and narrow path. But the military, after working hours, is like any other social environment, friends, dining, entertainment, movies, whatever. That's your free time. But it's a great, great venue, in my experience, that has, that has indeed brought many, many different peoples together and they actually go out together and seek entertainment together and seek activities together and and go out of their way to invite X, Y, or Z into the fold to enjoy whatever is going on. Great experience amongst people. Uh, I would I would say, you know, more so than for other people, I won't lie, I know people who had bad experiences in the military. But racially-wise... Amongst, you know, the common ranks, it was one big party, it was one big family. Where troubles occurred was the interactions between the lower ranks and the higher ranks, obviously. You know, the people who have to give orders and the people who have to take orders. And sometimes, like everywhere else, some people don't have the the expertise or the wherewithal insofar as interpersonal relationships. It can be mis- misconstrued sometimes, uh, but in my experience in the United States Army, I was a Cold War veteran, 85 to 90, and uh, I-, I found everyone to be very embracing. Uh, there was a lot of interaction, a lot of mixed, how do I say this, a lot of, a lot of mixed social activities, uh, where one night at the NCO club there would be an African-American celebration, but you'd have a wide range of people attending. Another night there would be uh, a Latino celebration, Latino night at the NCO club, if I may speak militarily. And sure, you had your preponderance of Latinos there, but you also had a, a great mix of other people who were going to enjoy enjoy whatever what, it, what was there happening and experience it amongst each other. Again, you're amongst familiar faces constantly, so I think that helps. But I think getting back to your point, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that, military is a great experience, and it does bring people together in their common cause. And through that, as, as your guest says, uh, Steve, it brings people together. People do talk, and through discourse, a lot of venues are opened up. You start to understand one one another, and you find that you have uh, commonalities amongst each other, and and that you learn how to respect your differences. And the and the military is a great vehicle for that, Sam. Uh, Steve, you know, take it away wherever you want to go. Well, I just agree with what Mike said completely. And uh, I remember one story from when I was in basic training in the Army. As I said, I was very uncoordinated. I went out for all the sports teams in uh, high school, and I couldn't make any team. I just was too uncoordinated. In fact, that's how I got into politics. Um, I 
realized I couldn't make it onto the sports teams. And all the girls like the guys on the sports teams. So one day I decided to analyze this, and I thought, why do the girls like the guys on the sports teams? And I thought, maybe it's because they're in the newspaper. So I got a newspaper, and I thought, how can I get in the newspaper? Well, there was one section about dead people. I figured that ain't going to help me if I'm dead. That won't help me get a girl. Then there was a section about criminals. I thought, that ain't going to help me. If they put me in jail, I'm not going to get any girls. Then there was a sports section. Well, I couldn't make it in sports, but there was one other section, and that was about politicians. And so by default, I decided to start working in politics. So what drove me into politics was I couldn't make it in sports, and I wanted some girls. So that's what happened to me. That's how I got into politics. But what he was saying, what Mike was saying, is absolutely true. And I'll tell you one story that symbolizes my time in the military. I was so uncoordinated. I had trouble in the morning at basic training, putting on my pack, getting my rifle where it ought to be. Every morning, two guys literally helped me get all that stuff on so that I could go out and try to do what the drill sergeant wanted us to do. And it was literally one black guy and one guy from Buffalo, New York, my two best friends in the Army, who would pull up my pack, help me get it on, adjust all that stuff. Without them, I'd still be in basic training. Because, right, anything cuts down stereotypes because we see we have a lot in common, we need each other, and we really like each other if we have the opportunity to get to know each other. Sam, if I may jump in, I can actually pick up where where Steve left off in basic training. Let, let, let me let me give you uh, a, let me have an honest uh, an honest moment here. I'm from Brooklyn, and I contemplated to myself: kid from Brooklyn is joining the military. You know, northeast biased, whatnot. My accent is just outrageous. I try to curb it. So here I am. I, I'm in the military. I'm in boot camp. Long story short. One of my best friends was from Kentucky, and I'm young, and he joined the military as an older gentleman. Uh, I think he was at the age limit where you can join. He might have been 36 at the time, at the time, not in the best shape. And you know, you have to do your physical training, and you have to pass your tests, and and so far as the two-mile run, push-ups, and setups, and whatnot. Uh, uh, now again, I'm young. And I was able to master the running, but my 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 friend had a difficult time with the run, and I finished mine, and I went back on the track, and I got right behind my friend, and just tried to encourage him and and push him and get him to the finish line, and try to get him under under time. And again, this man was from Kentucky. I love him like a brother. It's still to this day, nothing but great memories. And you know. Uh, two other friends that I still maintain today, one from Los Angeles and one from Minnesota who just passed away recently. Uh, and the only thing I'll tack on to that is another gentleman who was married. They were from Rochester, New York, and they are a mixed marriage. He is African-American. She is white, and I am godfather to their daughter. I love her like she was my own, and I love him, and I love her, and you know, those are the kinds of experiences that this kid uh, encountered in the military. Now, going in, because I had two years of college, there was a lot of options available to me that they would guarantee. And one of them uh, was choosing your stateside assignment. They gave me a wish list. They weren't going to guarantee me, but they said that you would... Uh, you know, we would do our best to stick you there if the allotments or the slot was open. So 
So I put uh, Fort Drum upstate New York. I put Fort Monroe in Virginia. And just for giggles, I put Fort Lewis out in Washington State just uh, to get on the West Coast and experience a different part of the country. I got neither. I got Texas. And, again, here's this Brooklyn kid saying, what the hell is a kid from Brooklyn going to do in Texas? Well, I wound up spending 19 months there. I loved it. Some places more than others. But I loved it. I enjoyed Texas. I enjoyed the people. And if we're going to pick up on race again, you know, there's a large Mexican-American contingent in Texas along with your native Texans. And I was in the surrounding areas of Colleen and Temple and uh, Belton Lake around there, uh, central Texas, uh, the areas surrounding Austin. And again, those were my experiences. I didn't see any hatred. I didn't see any racism. I just didn't. In my five years in the military, whether we were participating in civilian endeavor or we were participating in military endeavor, I just never came across it, at least not me with my fellow soldiers. Again, be it in a, in a, in a civilian club on 6th Street in Austin or in a little club in, in, in Belton or Colleen. Uh, very interesting. And, you know, people sitting home watching news, however which way you gain your news, be it radio, television, or otherwise, the computer, I would say a preponderance of these stories and incidents. And mind you, I live here in New York City. I don't see them. I don't experience them. And I made it my business to raise my son in Brooklyn, not New Jersey, not Long Island, not upstate New York or anywhere else. I made it my business to stay here and raise my son in New York City, i.e. Brooklyn. This way, he would be exposed. This way, he will have experience. This way, he will have that interpersonal relationship and interpersonal connectedness with all peoples because I know racists and I will say this much I am half Puerto Rican my father is half Italian half French I look white you look at me you think I'm Italian okay but I identify Spanish I identify with my mother's side of the family Puerto Rican and point here is people believing one thing and me actually being another I see racism on the ground floor. I see racism on the blueprint stage. I see racism in the developmental stage. And I'm tired of that. And when I left in 1985, they threw me a beach party. And at the very end, I told them all where they can go. I told them, I don't appreciate you people, and this is one of the reasons why I'm leaving, because you people are sour, sour sour-hearted and mean-spirited because I went as a child from a mixed neighborhood and at one point a predominantly African-American neighborhood to an all-white neighborhood and that was my first real encounter with racism that came from their mouth Uh, and I would just pick and choose my moments when to not fight back but when to humiliate them and make them understand that what you say is completely ignorant Go, Sam. Uh, Steve, where where were the honeymooners from in Brooklyn again? Well, (laughs) it says says they were from Brooklyn. Now, Ralph says his his mother-in-law lives in Bensonhurst. But they say they identify themselves as from Brooklyn. So, Mike is from the neighborhood. They lived on Chomps. They lived on Chauncey Street, if that is a real place. I don't know, but their address on the show was Chauncey Street. It is. It well, is. Mike is, there is a place Chauncey uh, Sam, you'll be, I guess you'll be amused to know, yes, there is a Chauncey Street. The honeymooners didn't say they were from Bensonhurst. Now, the exact address that they cite on the honeymooners, that address is actually in Bushwick. 
There's no Chauncey <laughs> Street in Bensonhurst. And Steve, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, this too. That uh, sorry, Steve, real quick before you pick up, I'll tell you this too. That Bensonhurst and Bushwick couldn't be farther from one another in Brooklyn. <laughs> well, you know that's a good example of the reality which you know, and the mythical imagination which is the source of my knowledge. All I know is these were people from Brooklyn. One of them was a bus driver. The other one worked in the sewer. They loved to bowl. They loved to play pool. And they went to the raccoon lodge, it seems like, every other night. These were people I could identify with. And then I look at a Woody Allen movie, and he makes New York seems so sympathetic and man I can identify with those Woody Allen movies so I think that um, you know in the popular mind it's so good if we can see something in places we've never been that we admire and that's the way I felt about the Honeymooners and the Woody Allen movies and the Patty Duke show and even the Dick Van Dyke show where he lived in New Rochelle, but he went into Manhattan to work every day. These are just things that make me feel like that's a welcoming place. Also, um, I'm, you know, you said that you've been to New York, and I, I'm not sure whether it was there when you went, but at Port Authority Bus Terminal in New York, New York, uh, at 42nd Street and 8th Avenue, uh, there is a statue of Ralph Crampton. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. That. that That's wonderful. And by the way, I want to say everything Mike said, I completely agree with everything that he said. And I, I think this experience you get in the Army, I think sports teams have a unique role in reproducing that experience, because like I said, you take down here, Georgia Tech was the first team in the South to integrate. We had, when my wife and I got married, Georgia Tech had the first black quarterback on a major Southern college football team, and he was a great player. I remember seeing him play. And then, of course, Alabama and all these other schools brought in black players. Well, you know what? It's mighty hard to be a racist when you spend all day Saturday pulling for a black guy to make a touchdown for your football team. It's hard to turn around on Sunday and think that there's a difference between black people and white people. So... I think sports teams are another way, like the military, that causes us to look at people as individuals and think of what we have in common instead of dwelling on any differences we might have. And, uh, Mike, we're closing in on an hour, but I was curious. Uh, Steve hails from basically three different corners of the South. Uh, he was born in South Carolina. He... Uh, was raised in Georgia, and he lives in Mobile, Alabama. And I was wondering if you could touch on any experiences of those three places, if at all, that you, you may have. I went to chemical school for the military in Alabama, Fort McClellan, uh, right outside of Anniston. Uh, we did a 10K, one, a 10K run once in Birmingham. And... Uh, fun experience with people lined up uh, along the roads and the sides and the streets. And I can only say it was fun. You know, we had some time to ourselves and we were able to walk around town and I loved it. I loved it. And again, I, I, I've always had this apprehension. Well, not always, but back then as a younger person, somewhat, uh, a little bit of apprehension being from Brooklyn. And I didn't want people to know that. I would just say I'm from New York. Like my drill sergeant, for instance, he came right to me. He wasted no time because he detected my accent. Where are you from? I said, New York drill sergeant. 
where in New York? I said, New York City, Drill Sergeant. He said, where in New York City? I said, Brooklyn, Drill Sergeant. And forget it. After that, <laughs> you know, I got ridden. I got ridden out of the guy from Brooklyn. But it was good natured. Never once did I feel uh, under duress because of it. Actually, it was a lot of fun. It was fun for me. It was fun for the drill sergeants. And it was fun for everybody in my in my company. You know, we all got a kick out of it because we were all from everywhere. And I did meet people from everywhere. And I was all over the South, spent 19 months in Texas, spent upwards of 13, I think it was 15 weeks in, in Alabama, outside of Aniston at Fort McClellan. I uh, went to boot camp in, in Fort Jackson in South Carolina, you know, and before having to leave in there, I went to Columbia, hung out. Uh, I've driven through Louisiana. I've driven through Mississippi, uh, Alabama, been to Georgia and, and the Carolinas. Everything on the East Coast up from Maine through Florida, I've been there. And I've been that opposite L shape as you hang that left, and you go through the southern states, Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, and, you know, uh, it, it changed my mind. It changed my perception. It educated me. Uh, and I'm so grateful for the experience to have to spend. You know, it's one thing when you go on vacation or if you just visit for a weekend or a long week or two weeks, but when you spend substantial time in a place, months or a year or more, you start to understand, you start to delve into people's minds and how they think and how they go about their business. And, you know, my experience, America is good. I don't know where they find all this crap that they put on TV and on social medias. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Uh, I know it exists. But personally, those, in those incidences are far and few between, in my personal experience, no matter what state I've been in. And, and and Steve, I enjoyed Alabama very much. I went, to, I went to Rickwood Stadium, the oldest ballpark in America, caught a game there, had a good time in Alabama. Uh, when I wanted directions, people were very helpful, uh, very kind, and very respectful. Uh, and that's well, all I, I can just say. I just want to tell you, I'm so glad... Uh, that I had the opportunity to visit with y'all during this call. And I want to tell you that I think everything that both of you have said is exactly right. And I think this show is a good example. I feel more included in the fabric of America from talking to the two of you and listening to the two of you and I think our challenge right now is to reach out to the people who don't have the advantage of getting to talk to people who are different from them and tell them that we love them and that we care about them. And I think if we do that, then love will prevail and our country will heal. And I think that's what we all want. We want to respect everybody. We want to hear they're hurt and feel their pain and let them know we care about it. But I agree with Mike. This is a good country full of good people. We just need to take the time to get to know each other. I'm in lockstep. I, I believe this I believe this is the foundation to all of this. No, I was just going to say I agree uh, wholeheartedly with Steve. I believe this course is the foundation to bigger and better things. I mean, there's really, it's hard to end the show on anything more beautiful. And, and I, I do want to touch on this real quick, that, Mike, your, your experience with the drill sergeant reminded me of, and I, I don't know what movie it was from, but Ken Burns, I believe on his, either his war episode of baseball or the 50s, the capital of baseball, uh, to basically they come across a unit uh, somewhere somewhere during World War II, and to prove that they are American, uh, they talk about Brooklyn and the Dodgers. <laughs> and yeah. that's something that, that I, I forget exactly what picture it was from, but that uh, that's just what came to my mind when you were telling that story. And I thank both of you, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass it over. We always like to do the last words, Steve, and we're going to start with Mike, and then we're going to go to you. 
think is the word here. When you're dealing with something that you are not familiar with, something that you know little about, something that you've had little contact with, and I do mean people, people are apprehensive, and they tend to stick with what they know and stay with where they're familiar. Interaction and discourse are key. Engage. Everybody's good. Everybody has good in their heart. And the more we come together and engage and have dialogue and talk to each other and find out more about each other, the friendlier all 350 million people in this country will will be. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you joining us today. Go ahead, Steve. I just agree with everything that Mike said, and I just want to say to the people in Brooklyn and in New York, I don't think you appreciate how much love people in the rest of the country have for Brooklyn. And I I just, it's hard for me to feel like I need to point this out. People love Brooklyn. And it might be hard for you to believe since you live up there. People love Brooklyn. Wherever you go, if you wear one of those blue hats with the B on it, people are going to come up to you. They love Brooklyn. It chills down my back. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. I I greatly appreciate it. And to all of you out there, whether it's Brooklyn, Alabama, or beyond, be kind and carry on. And uh, just have to touch on uh, condolences to the uh, Bozeman family for Chadwick Bozeman's death. And it's uh, remarkable and, and chilling that it happened on Jackie Robinson Day. His portrayal of an American icon and a few American icons over the course of his career uh, was fascinating and fantastic. And he's gone ever so soon. And I I couldn't finish this podcast without touching on that. Uh, Live life, everybody. Soak it up. Do right by you, but do right by others more importantly. We love you all. Thank you for listening. Take care out there.